Only one man lived, died, and came back to give us the only credible report on how we can prepare for the ultimate journey at the end of our life on planet Earth. None of us can afford to get these ultimate instructions wrong. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtson, as he continues our study on 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1-5, through 5, giving some strong reasons why we can trust the Apostle Paul and not the latest spiritual tidbit out of Hollywood. You live in a culture where everybody talks about everybody being right, but nobody reads hardly anybody. Everybody learns secondhand. Nobody really thinks carefully about what everybody is saying. Because this whole Casper kind of a vanilla kind of stuff, everybody's right. I want to share with you from the bottom of my heart, not everybody's right. And oh, I'm thankful for a man that would write down to the Corinthians, Corinthians, I'm right. Because that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, I'm an apostle. Not in arrogance, not in pride. But you know why he said it out of deepest humility? He says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul didn't ordain himself. He wasn't some self-ordained religious teacher that went around using religion to make bucks from people. The Apostle Paul was an apostle totally as a gift from heaven. We've learned in the book of Acts, when I shared with you the testimony of the Apostle Paul, three times in the book of Acts we read how he, on the Damascus Road, was seeking Christians, not Christ. And he was seeking Christians not to have fellowship with them, but to destroy them. And yet on the Damascus Road, by the will of God, the risen Christ appeared to him and the apostle, the Saul, the Jewish Pharisee, the persecutor of believers, by the call of God, called to be an apostle, by the call of God, by an act of heaven, by an eyewitness manifestation of Christ, by a gift of God, Paul became an apostle. That's what he's saying. And I'm sharing with you from my heart, that's why I believe he told the truth. And I find the more I dig into his writings, the more I internalize what he's saying, the more that his word gives me life, because it's true. And so I challenge you in verse 1 to ask yourself, who's the apostle in your life? Who's really the authority in your life? Is Shelley Long a credible authority? Is Shirley MacLaine a credible authority? Can you put them alongside and have them make the kind of claim that Paul made? You can't go both ways. As for me and my house, we'll listen to what the Apostle Paul said. The church. He says that, and our brother Sosthenes, and that leads us right into this whole idea of this family relationship, to the church, to the gathering of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church. Now that word church, when we read it, we automatically think in our culture of building, the church. We taught the churches in Midlothian. If I say, name the churches in Midlothian, what would you tell me? And what we're really talking about is the different denominations, the different buildings. And that shows you how much words can change in meaning. Because the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the church of Corinth, he wasn't thinking of this particular denomination, that particular denomination, that particular denomination. The word church is built on an Old Testament idea of the gathering of people. 
Not the building of buildings, but the gathering of people. And this today should be the gathering of God. And the of God means this is God's gathering. You see, what makes a church is when God's people are together. When you gather in assembly together. That's what makes a church. And Paul writes to the gathering, the assembly of those who are possessed by God, who are owned by God in the city of Corinth. And then he says some things about them. He says to the church, to the gathering of God in Corinth, and he says an amazing thing, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. If I were to walk up to you and say, are you sanctified? You know what a lot of you would say? Who, me? I said, yeah, are you sanctified? I walk into a teenager. That's the last thing in the world a teenager wants to be sanctified. What does that mean? I'm going to wear a long white robe with a little halo over here and sing sweet little tunes with a harp in my hand. You understand what I'm talking about? Sanctified in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice something. He doesn't say in this verse, those who will be sanctified. Very important. Look carefully at the verse. He doesn't say, I'm writing to you, Corinthians, the church of God in Corinth, to those who one day are going to make it and be perfect just like Christ. He doesn't say that. He says, to those who are sanctified right now. Now you go, wait a minute, David. Wait, wait, wait just a minute. You just told me this church, I mean, you talk about a church with problems. When you started today, I thought our church had problems, but when I compare the problems compared to the problems of the church at Corinth, man, I think maybe we're sanctified, but they sure weren't. You understand what I'm saying? I want you to think about the word sanctified. The word sanctified basically and fundamentally means to be set apart. It has a very strong stress on the idea of being chosen. You see, in the Old Testament, there would be a vessel. And that vessel would just be a common vessel. It would be a, a, a bowl or a spoon or some kind of a utensil that you would put fluid in that would be used in every home. But when the Lord ordained the building of the temple, he said, I want you to take, I want you to fashion a utensil, and then I want you to sanctify it. I want you to sanctify. And we say, what in the world? You know, how in the world can a gold basin be sanctified? I mean, it, it can't be morally pure. There's no morality in that bowl. What did it mean that it was sanctified? It would mean that it was set apart to be specially used of God, to be specially used for Him. The essence of the word, those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, is the idea that God in some special sense, the moment that you believed in Him, the moment that you received Him as your Savior, the moment that you met Him personally, the Lord grabbed a hold of you and set you into a new group. He set you apart. He took you out of the kingdom of darkness and He set you in the people of God. He took you out of being an enemy, living in darkness, living for the pageant of the flesh, and He set you into a new family, a new community. He set you apart. He sanctified you. He set you apart to be used for His purposes. Just like Paul was set apart to be an apostle, he was called by God to be an apostle, every one of you that have genuinely come to know Christ have been set apart for God. 
Now, personally, I believe that you can't divorce ethics from that, though the basic fundamental idea of being sanctified in this context has this idea of just being set apart without a moral implication. As the Apostle Paul begins to write Corinthians, the moral connotations of what it means to be set apart for Christ are weighing deeply upon his heart and upon his mind. You see, what I want you to realize, every one of you that are born-again believers, is that you do not become sanctified because you're pure. You see, a lot of you have the idea that you work hard, you get your act together, you get your marriage together, you stop cheating on your income tax, you're morally pure, you get a hold of your thoughts, you're nice to people, and then you're in the family of God, and you're working hard to do it. In other words, you're trying hard to make yourself to be acceptable to God. Then I can come before God and say, God, I finally got my act all cleaned up. Here I am. I want to present myself to you. That's totally wrong. And you'll never make it that way. You see, none of you have the power to do that. So the Apostle Paul isn't saying that they've been sanctified because they got their act all cleaned up. They got themselves all tied up. They put on their best clothes. Now they walk in the temple of God and say, now I'm set apart for you. Because then you could boast. You'd say, I bought the suit. I bought the morality. I worked hard to get where I am. That's not at all what the Apostle Paul is talking about. These Corinthians were true saints, sanctified in Christ Jesus by a gift. You know what a lot of us need to start doing? We need to start thinking about our identity. We need to start thinking about what Christ has done. You see, the moment that you are born again, Christ created a new person inside of you. That really happened. It's not a feeling. It's not having an, an ice cream popsicle drip down the back of your back, sending chills up and down your spine. It's not just a human emotion, but a deep spiritual historical happening took place the moment that you were born again. The moment that you genuinely believe Christ set you apart and created a new person inside of you that's pure, that's Christ-like, that's holy. And Christ, when he looks at you, and God, when he looks at you, sees you from that perspective. And it's as you believe that, as you begin to see yourself, I am the people of God. I have been sanctified by Christ. It's that that starts to create the potential for living like that in everyday living. The problem with the book of Corinthians is how to get people that are sanctified in heaven from God's perspective to live like they're sanctified in the hell of earth. That's what it's all about. How to get people that from a, from a heavenly perspective are set apart, are pure in Christ, are in Christ. Really everything God wants them to be in that position. How to get them to manifest that in everyday earthly living. And that's what you're all struggling with. But you'll never be able to conquer and move ahead and become pure until you begin to rest in the miracle of the gift of being set apart. See, I set Mary apart. You see, I set Mary apart. There was a historical time where I set Mary apart. At our wedding ceremony, a guy stood in front of us and says, Dave Wurzen, will you have this woman? And I said, yes, I will. And when we turned around and walked out the aisle of that church in Nebraska, our lives radically changed. Our whole identity changed. 
Before that moment, I was single Dave Wurtzen, unmarried. After that moment, I was set apart into a marriage relationship, and everything was different. My whole position changed. And it's that kind of an idea that happens when we're born again into God's family. Our whole identity is revolutionized. We become a new person. There's a new relationship. We become the people of God. And I want you to see that the Apostle Paul is running that to all the Corinthians, not just to a special few. It's underscored by the next thing that he calls them, called to be holy, as the NIV says, or called saints. The word to be really isn't in the Greek text all the way through here. In English, you can supply it, but I think it's interesting to think of it. Paul says, I was called an apostle. And the way it's written in the Greek text, Paul called apostle. Corinthians called saints. And it's like this word sanctification. If I walked up to you and said, hello, St. Audrey, Hello, St. Roberta. Hello, St. Bob. Hello, St. Tommy. You all laugh. I've even heard some giggles. Why do you laugh? Why do you laugh? Hello, St. Kim. You know why you laugh? What's your idea of a saint? We're really not in the Roman Catholic tradition, but the ideas that we have in our mind are very much in tune with that tradition. You know what a saint is in the Roman Catholic tradition, which is a very old and venerable tradition? A saint is a knockout follower of Christ. I mean, you talk, there's super people in NFL ball. Roger Staubach was a super NFL quarterback. He was a saint in the NFL. And we have super NFL players, and in the Christendom, we have the super players, the Hall of Famers. Now, how many of you are going to make the Hall of Fame in the family of God? Every one of you are sitting out there going, not me, not little old me. I mean, I don't have that kind of ability. Somebody else might do it, but not me. Mother Teresa, she's in. But man, who can be Mother Teresa, right? That's your idea. Saint so-and-so, Saint Mother Teresa. When she dies and when she's brought into that saintly position, oh yeah, she was the World Series, the champion the Hall of Famer of Christendom. That's not what the Apostle Paul... You know, did I, you remember what I started out with? We did not have a church full of Mother Teresa's in 1 Corinthians. I want to promise you we don't. We've got a church full of all kinds of cesspool kind of moral problems. But Paul writes to this whole body, all these Corinthians, and says, I was called an apostle, you're called saints. Now, how in the world can the Apostle Paul say that? Because you don't earn saintliness. I want to say that again because it's so hard for you to get it. I preach it at you. I yell at you. I've taught it to you for years, but it's so hard for anybody to believe it because it's such a wonder. You are a saint by a gift. You are a saint because God decided you were a saint. You're a saint because God chose you to be a saint. And you say, little old me, what did I do? And the answer is nothing. Absolutely nothing. You weren't beautiful. You weren't alluring. You weren't going to be so marvelous that God looked down through the corners of time and says, wow, look what so-and-so will do in my family. Let me call them in. Forget it all. When I ask God, God, why did you choose Dave Wurtzen? He looks at me and says, because I wanted to. Why did you want to? 
Because I chose you. Come on, Lord. What wasn't inside of me? What did you see deep, you know, just like in the sound of music, somewhere in my miserable, wicked youth, I must have done something good for this marvelous gift of love to happen, right? That's the way you all think. We're born to think like that, but it's a lie. God looks at me and says, no, somewhere in your distant, miserable youth, you must have did something even worse than you thought you did. So I say, Lord, why do you love me? Why did you make me a saint? Why did you put me in your family? And God looks at me and says, because I wanted to. Because I chose to love you. And I want you just to think about that for a long, long time. Because there's a whole lot of little girls in this audience who've never had anybody ever do that. And there's a whole lot of little boys in this audience who your dad, when he watched you on the soccer field, if you did really well, he patted you on the head if you were lucky and said, man, I'm proud of you. And all your dad was saying, boy, he's just a chip off the old block. All these parents are sitting there going, wow, look how good an athlete. He must have some daddy. And all that daddy is, it's full of pride. And some of you have labored all your life. You're trying to please. You're trying to perform. You're trying to be accepted. And some of you never had a mom and dad who just said, I love you. No performance. No earning it. But I love you because I chose you. You're my special person. And that's what the Apostle Paul began this letter to the Corinthians about. He looked at a church that was crumbling under all kinds of immorality and all kinds of dissension and all kinds of problems. And God is wrapping his arms around this church and I could never do it except by the grace of God. But God wrapped his arms around this church and said, you're my sanctified ones. You're my saints. And brothers and sisters, if you want to act like saints, you're going to have to respond to the grace that declares that you are saints. It's the only way to do it. Paul is running to a church and he calls them sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And notice it's not an exclusive thing. You say, well, Dave, maybe that was just the Corinthians God loved like that. No, Paul won't let us say that because he says, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just a Corinthian Christ that sanctifies and makes holy the Corinthians, but he is a universal Christ. And down through the quarters of time, the book of Corinthians is written to all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the Psalms, like for example in Psalm 50, they'll call on the name of the Lord. All through the Old Testament, there's a group of people who when they're in trouble, when they feel destitute, when they feel alone, when they feel wicked, they call out on Yahweh. They say, oh, Yahweh, save us. The New Testament does an amazing thing. Contrary to the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Jehovah's Witnesses put all kind of stress upon Yahweh, Jehovah. Jehovah just is an English perversion of the Hebrew word Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, the the most intimate name for God in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Israelites would call out, My Lord, when they needed help. In Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul said this, Whosoever shall call on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. 
Only in Romans 10, an amazing thing has happened. Yahweh is not the Lord, creator God of Mount Sinai, who becomes the national God of Israel, who makes them a nation. But Yahweh becomes equal to the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And in the New Testament, Yahweh becomes Jesus Christ living among us. And the Old Testament words of salvation, the Old Testament words of help, the Old Testament words of deliverance, oh, Yahweh, save me, becomes, oh, Jesus Christ, save me. And it's not just saying words. Notice he says to all those who call on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, the Yahweh of the Old Testament that has now become flesh and lived on our planet and has died on the cross and then rose again. The Christ, the Lord Jesus, he's the Savior, the promised Savior. His name shall be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The Lord Jesus Christ, he's the anointed one, the Old Testament Jewish Messiah. And everyone, every place, anywhere that calls on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And that makes us the people of God. I want to ask you a question. Do you identify with Midlothian Bible Church or do you identify with believers? I ask myself that. As I think about Midlothian, do I think about the people of God? Or do I think about a Methodist, Baptist, Bible church? You see how we separate ourselves? This is a mentality that we have. And it so easily comes upon us. And it can easily come upon a Bible church. We pride ourselves. We're not a denomination. We are open to that. But how quickly we can move in with our friends. Well, I go to the Bible church. Well, I go to the Baptist church. Do you know what kind of a youth program we have in the Bible church? It's much better than that over there. Well, we were able to build this building. How are you coming with your building? Well, we built a much bigger one than you did, finally. See what we get into? Oh, the competition. Preachers arguing back and forth. In America, I think a lot of times we've lost the universal idea to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And I want to share something with you. I'm not talking about a liberal ecumenicity. You see, there's a large cry in the world for everybody to get together. We're all just one big happy family. And so you gather together. Oh, I'm calling upon Krishna. I'm calling upon Buddha. I'm calling upon Confucius. Let's all get together because after all, it all ends up in the same place. That ecumenicity will end up in the ecumenicity of Antichrist. That call that's going out powerfully in the modern world. There isn't any truth. It's all truth. That doesn't make any sense at all. But that's what's being said. There is all truth. Everything is truth. So what we need to do is to get together in the Unity Church. The Unity Church proclaims this very strongly. We need to all get together and be one happy human family of brotherhood. You'll end up unified in the kingdom of darkness. Some of you won't like that kind of thinking, but it's the truth. And I want you to strongly commit yourself to that. We're talking about a universal family, but it's not a universal family built on all things are truth. It's built on a family who recognizes that there is one truth. There is one Savior. There is only one Lord Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man the man, Christ Jesus. It's very important for you to understand that. Because when you die, 
the people in the Orient are not going to meet Buddha. People in China are not going to meet Confucius. The communists are not going to go into their void of nothingness. Those who are agnostic are not going to be agnostic. Well, I don't know what's going on. They're not going to be up there in the eternal world going, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. You see, at that moment of life and death, truth will win. And we'll all find out what's true. And you know what a believer is? A believer is someone on this side of eternity that says, Lord Jesus Christ, I call on your personality. I don't just use your name as a slogan word. It's not just a foxhole, oh, Jesus, help me. But it's Jesus, I've gotten to know who you are as a person. I realize you died for me. I realize you rose again, and I call upon you as a person to save me. And everybody, red and yellow, black and white, everyone who's called on the name of Jesus like that is born into that family. And when we call on Jesus like that, he becomes our Lord, the Corinthians Lord, and our Lord.